Amen. The title of this sermon is The Davidic Covenant, an Iron Age Contract with the Everlasting God. In 2 Samuel 7, we find what theologians have long called the Davidic covenant, the covenant, the agreement, the contract God made with David about a thousand years ago. You might not realize this, but you're, you're, now, now you're going to realize this. It is one of the high points in the Old Testament. It is one of the great scenes in the Old Testament. And one of the great promises ever given to people upon the earth, the Davidic covenant. Let me ask and answer the question, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? In the ancient world, a covenant was just about the same thing as what we in the modern world call a contract. So you're buying a house, you get a contract. There are terms. They agree to this. You agree to that. Everybody signs. You now have a contract. You now have a covenant. When a husband and a wife become a husband and a wife, they take vows. They make oaths. They say, I do. They create. They take together a, a covenant. It's a binding contract. It is an agreement between two parties. There are terms that are involved. I will do this for you. I will do that for you. That's a covenant. That's a contract. In the Bible, there are five. Some people count more than five. I think they're using their imaginations. There are five covenants identified for us by God in the Bible as covenants that God made with people. Let me list them, list them for you. There's the covenant God made with Noah right after the flood. Remember, every time you see a rainbow, that's the sign of that covenant. I'll never destroy the earth with a flood again. That's the Noahic covenant. Then there is the Abrahamic covenant. God brought Abraham out of a pagan foreign land and pointed him toward Israel and said, I'm going to give you land and seed and blessing. And uh, it, was, it was a covenant God made with Abraham. By the way, in the Bible, some of the covenants, four of the five are unconditional. God just says, I will. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter about you. I will. I'm the terms of the covenant. I will do these things. One of the, one of the covenants is um, conditional. And that is the next one, the Mosaic Covenant. God says, if you, then I. And the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant between God and his covenant people to give them laws, civil, ceremonial, and moral laws to govern their conduct and their worship and their government while they were in the land waiting for the coming of Messiah. Then there's the that's the Mosaic Covenant. Pardon me, I drifted into it. The Mosaic Covenant, God made with Moses. Then there's the Davidic Covenant, which we're looking at today. Then there is the New Covenant, promised in the Old Testament, but ratified by Christ when he shed his blood. We are now participants. We are in Christ, members of the New Covenant. So five covenants, what one has called a beautiful tapestry of covenants, and what another calls some of the skeleton of the Old Testament that gives its, its muscle and its fat, its shape and its contours, five covenants. Today we're learning about the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. 
We've already read the backstory. It takes us back to first century BC, first century Israel. David is very blessed. David is king. How many of you are a king? David was a king, a king of a nation, a great nation upon the earth. And as king, he was very blessed uh, with his life financially in every way. And he loves the Lord. But he feels bad. He's got some of that thing that psychologists in our day would call cognitive dissonance. He feels a little bit uneasy. He feels that it isn't quite right. There's incongruity between his state and the state of God's ark. Lord, I live in a palace of fine cedar wood, and where's your ark and your presence but in a hundreds-of-year-old tent? So he comes up with a great idea. Lord, Here's, what, here's what's flowing out of my heart today. Here's what's flowing out of my love for you today. I want to build you something. I want to build you a house. And the prophet Nathan is there with him, and he's pretty excited about David's heart and David's passions and David's willingness to build a house for God. And he says, good idea, man, I'm paraphrasing. Go and do all that is in your heart, and may the Lord be with you. But then God says, "Uh, Nathan, let's have a little conference about this. Let's have a conference about um, who's going to build what and for whom. And God tells David, I haven't, God tells Nathan to tell David, I haven't had a house since I brought you up out of Egypt. I haven't asked for a house. I never told the judges to make me a house, and I didn't tell you to make me a house. Instead, here's what's going to happen. Now let's move on in the text to the covenant, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Part of the Davidic covenant is really a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant. There are land promises. I'm going to give you as king, and I'm going to give your people land. You have a place where you can plant yourselves. You may dwell there. Others won't disturb you. You'll live in peace and in safety. And let me just let me just tell you now, for each thing we see in this Davidic covenant, there was a near and a far fulfillment. Near, near to them in their day, in their place, in their time, and far to other peoples in another place and another time. It's kind of like looking at a covenant and its promises. It's kind of like looking at a mountain range where you've got a little mountain in front of you, and you don't even realize it, but right behind it, there's a way bigger mountain, but because of your perspective, you can't really see the way bigger one, but it's back there. That's how each promise in these covenants goes. And each promise we're going to see in the Davidic covenant contains a little mountain, a near fulfillment, and a big mountain, a far fulfillment. So already when we see this land promise, I'll appoint a place for them, and I will plant them there, and they may dwell there in their own place, a place, a place, a place. Land is part of the problem. There was a near fulfillment. What was the land? What was it? Don't you all talk at once now. What was it? 
It was, it was Palestine, right? It was, it was Israel. It was the, the land. What is the far fulfillment? Ah, what was Palestine as promise in the Old Testament becomes the earth in the New Testament. This isn't known well enough by followers of Jesus Christ. I want to show you this. I'm going to go a little overboard. We're supposed to be tracking through 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to stop right here in verse 10 and go to the New Testament for a little bit and show you that this is really, it's become the earth. So follow with me. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the the earth. Wait a minute, I thought the promise was about a little piece of land on the east side of the Mediterranean. No, 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 no. That was the little mountain. Here's the big mountain. In the New Testament, it becomes the earth. Hebrews 11 Verse 8a, by faith he, that is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now go down to the next verse, 811b, or the next part of the verse. For he was looking forward, there in Palestine, he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was not just looking for a piece, a little piece of land called Palestine, Israel. He was not looking for one little city called Jerusalem. He was looking for a much bigger mountain. He was looking for a city, look at that phrase again, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Again, Hebrews 11, we read about Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then it says of them, these all died in faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, we are strangers and exiles, people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. What was that homeland? Hebrews eleven sixteen. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the land promises began with one little piece of, 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 of land, a little piece of soil and dirt and mountains and water on the east of the Mediterranean, but then they broadened into the earth, which will become a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you and I, who are strangers and pilgrims. Do you feel yourself to be a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth? Not enough of you are nodding. Can, 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 you, can you sympathize with that, that song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through? Can you, do you feel that? That's what they all felt. This is not my place. This is not really where I belong. This is not where I'm going to end up. This is not where I'll live the most of my time. I am only here, James says, what is your life? It is but a vapor which appears for a very short time, and then it's gone. 
This is not home. That is home. That's the land I seek. That's the city I want to dwell in. That's the place, that's the kingdom that I'm living for. That's what all these men and women of faith said. So there was a near fulfillment. You'll be in Israel, and you'll be safe from all your enemies, and there's a far fulfillment. Now let's go on. Second Samuel. Back to Second Samuel. Remember we're in Second Samuel? Okay. We're in the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel. Let's go on with it. And here's the next promise. First it was land, and now there's more. Second Samuel 7, 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. How cool is that? David says, oh, Father, I love you so much. You've blessed me so much. I want to make you a house. God says, wrong builder, wrong house. Let's turn it around, David. Here's what's really going to happen. I am going to, it's unconditional, I am going to build or make you a house. Now, what was the near fulfillment of that house? Solomon's temple. The great and amazing and glorious Solomon's temple. And God says, I'm going to raise up your seed after you. We'll see that in the next verse. And he's going to build for me that house. So God says, I'm going to make you a house. But what's the far fulfillment of that? You're in it. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the new covenant temple, the house made not with hands, the house made of living stones. It is the church of the Lord Jesus, God's own dwelling place. This is a direct fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. God is making for himself a house. You're living stones. This prophecy is about you. These promises are about you. Jesus left the earth and said, I go to prepare a place for you. There's an even greater version of this house that's coming. There's a yet future version of this house that will far surpass the glories of this house. We're going there soon. Many of you know that Debbie's mother lives with us. She's 88. And we have people almost every day in our house, medical people and help and stuff, people helping us. And they're all, they're all professionals at this. And they're all telling us, Duke, you're into days and maybe weeks now, not months. Maybe they're wrong. She's tough. Maybe she'll just spite them, hang on for longer. But they're telling us days maybe weeks. She's hardly saying anything anymore, except if you ask her, do you want to drink? She'll say, yes. It's about how it comes out. It's about all she's saying. But at least like two weeks ago, when she was still talking a little now and then, she was saying many times, she said, I want, I want to get out of here. Where do you want to go? I want to go see my daddy. She didn't know what she was saying. She meant back on the 200-acre farm in Lexington, Virginia. I want to go back to the farm to a better day, to a better time, and see my dad. I want to go see my daddy. She had forgotten about the fact that he's in heaven, and she is about to go see her daddy. She's going to leave this house and this earthly dwelling and go to that one 
that greater city. And let's go on and read what comes next in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. Moreover, verse 13, he, your son Solomon, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what's the promise? Land and house, and now the throne of his kingdom. He and his progeny shall rule forever. And this is, you see the the word forever? It's used eight times in this chapter. Most of them are after the verses we're looking at, where David responds to the verses we're looking at, where David responds to the covenantal promises by praying to God. And in his prayer, he says, forever, 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 over and over and over. But here is one of the forevers in the chapter. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In Luke chapter 1, at Jesus' birth, angels spoke, and they said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So what God is doing right now is is a direct result of what he promised and covenanted to David. What God is doing right now flows out of the Davidic covenant and yet flows to a great bigger, a bigger mountain, a greater mountain in the future. We're in the church of Jesus Christ now. We will be in a literal new heavens and new earth and a heavenly city then. And right now, where is Christ seated? And what do we know about that place? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. He rules. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He reigns. He is enthroned in the heavens. My dear friends, all this stuff going on on the planet. Like, is this even going on or are we having a dream or something? Is 2020 really happening? This is, it's not going to go like this in 2021, right? January 1, everything will change. It's got to. We can't survive this. We're praying. That's right. But listen, all this crazy stuff going on, don't forget, Jesus Christ, son of David, is established in the throne of David's kingdom forever. He rules. He reigns. Not one thing shall come to pass apart from his permission. Not one thing happens apart from his wise and gracious and loving eternal plan. He's not shocked by anything. He's not saying, wait, Gabriel, come here. 2020, what happened here? I didn't know about this. No, 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 no. This is from before the foundations of the earth. This is God's eternal plan. We're just the crazy souls who get to live in it. A heavenly kingdom. Let's fast forward to verse 16. Verse 16, please. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
Eight times in the chapter. Eternal, forever, eternal, forever, eternal, forever. Perpetuity, made sure, made firm. Verse 17, please. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Thus we have the terms of the Davidic covenant. And if we were to read the rest of the chapter, we would find David saying, Oh, Lord, who am I that you have made such great promises to me? And it's, it's an awesome prayer that he pours out. Read that on your own. I want to go to some concluding comments that are going to take a little while. But the clock tells me I have 19 minutes and 30 seconds, so we're okay. There's a countdown clock back there. First, I just hinted at it, but I want to remind you. I want to say this to you. God, your God, has a plan. And Ephesians 1.11 tells us he is right now, right now, he is working, hands-on working. He's a hands-on deity. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will which was settled, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past. Here is the counsel of our will. Now in time, he is working all things according to the counsel of that will. He says in the Old Testament somewhere, none can stay his hand. What he purposes to do, he will do. What he purposes to undo, he will undo. No one can question his authority. No one can stand against his purposes and his will. God, your God has a plan. We're just seeing little parts of it today, looking at how it surfaced a thousand years before Christ with some unconditional promises made to an undeserving king. And then how Christ was born in fulfillment of those promises. And he's building a house for God. And it shall be a greater house in a greater city, in a greater land one day. All these things are working, working according to God's holy will. A second thing I want to say by way of conclusion. God has a plan and we have a mission. We have a mission. It's got several parts to it. I'm going to mention just two of them. One, part one of our mission. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ today is to submit our wills, to subjugate our lives to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to seek to know his will and his ways and to do them as his people upon the planet to submit ourselves to the son of David who right now rules from heaven and will rule until he's put every enemy, the last enemy is death, under his feet. So our mission is, part one, to submit ourselves to him. But here's another part, and there could be more, but I'm only mentioning two. And here's another part of our mission. It is to announce the good news to people. To people in every neighborhood, to people in in every country, to people in every nation, to people in every workplace, to people in every gymnasium. Planet Fitness is where I'm working out currently. Ten bucks a month. But there's people in there. I like the the demographics, by the way. It's about 50%, if not more, African American and 50% Caucasian with a few other things thrown in there. 
And I like that. What I don't like is right now, everybody's wearing masks, except those who aren't. Most everybody's wearing masks, and you can't read their facial expressions, so you can't know, because you're an extrovert and you can intuitively know these things, there's one I can talk to. So it's kind of ruined right now. Masks are ruining the thing at the gym. Masks are destroying the, the relationships that can lead to gospel conversations, and I'm not digging it. Maybe January 1, huh? But we're here on a mission is to announce the good news to people everywhere so that they too can be happy subjects of Christ's kingdom forever if they transfer their allegiance, if they bow the knee and give allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to the King. We're here for such a brief time, and the people around us are here for such a brief time, and they need to die in Christ. They need to hear the message. They need to hear the gospel. I think it's absolutely tragic that churches can't meet, or in some cases can but aren't, but that churches can't meet due to COVID. Now, I'm not trying to buck. This is not a political comment. I'm not trying to buck the system. I think our governor has been very fair with us, unlike, say, California, and the way some churches are responding to their governor. We're not in that situation. Our governor has been very equitable. I'm, I'm very happy with how he's treated the church, and we're allowed to meet. But do you realize how, how much gospel opportunity we have lost in these past seven months. Seven months ago, we were just starting. We were excited about, we were just launching a whole bunch of what we were calling seeker groups. Small groups where you're gonna invite friends and friends and friends who don't know Christ and love on them and share the gospel with them and invite them to church. And then COVID hit and one or two of them kind of hung on, but all the others said, we're on, we're on hold. It's still on hold. And our normal community groups, they kind of went for a while because they're a great place to invite too. How, how are we fulfilling the Great Commission? One of our great ideas is in groups, in community, invite friends. They meet other Christians. They hear God's word. They get interested. I'm off subject. Bear with me. Not many people hear the gospel out there once and believe and are saved. Normally, they hear it, and then maybe they hear it again, then maybe they hear it again, and then they say, I got to go visit me at church. And you bring them along with you to church. If many of them aren't showing up in church, it's because we're not reaching many of them. They need to be coming to a church during COVID. They're not coming to church. This has really hurt world evangelism. This has really hurt the spread of the gospel. And we got to scramble and figure out how, how do we do better now? Because this thing's going to go on how long? Who knows? How do we scramble things now so we can be on that mission of announcing the good news to people everywhere? God has a plan. We have a mission and now I want to speak directly to some of you who are not yet believers. And I'll just say it like this. You need to enter Christ's kingdom. You need to enter Christ's kingdom. 
Let me show you some things that God the Father said in the Old Testament and God the Son said in the New Testament that invite you into Christ's kingdom. More scripture. Been a lot of scripture in this sermon. Going to give you some more scripture. Here we go. Isaiah 55.1. God says, come. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. That was me when I was 17. I was a thirsty soul. I hoped there was something better than this. I hoped there was more to life than, than this. You eat, you drink, you be married, and one day you die. That didn't sound like a very good plan. There are thirsty people. Some of you are thirsty. And God says to you, come, come to the waters. And you say, well, I don't have anything to bring. I haven't been a very good person. I'm not a righteous soul. I haven't been a churchgoer and on and on and on. He says, no, no, no. And he who has nothing to offer, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. It's free. You can buy it with no money. Come, buy wine and milk in their days. That's good food. Without money and without price. Then he goes on, Isaiah 55, 2. And why are you spending your money for that which is not bread? Why are you all excited about? Why are you all into? Why are you all earning for? Why are you all buying stuff that doesn't satisfy your thirst? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? See, that's what I had discovered by the time I was 16, 17. None of this satisfies. Like, by the standards of people around me, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing good at this, and that's successful, and I'm doing good at that, and and I'm doing good at that. But none of it satisfies. Why spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, diligently to me, says God, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Now listen to this part. Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Now watch this. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. You get to enter into that contract. You get to enter into that covenant with no money, with nothing to give, with nothing to contribute. Just empty hands of faith. Father, I'm believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and praying that he will save my unworthy soul. And God says, there you enter into the terms of my contract with David. Jesus echoes this near the very end of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. You know that? I will give you seed. Jesus says, I'm that seed. Oh, Solomon was a little mountain seed. I'm the real seed. And in Galatians we read, and all you who are in Christ are Abraham's seed, as it was restated in David's covenant later. And so you're David's seed and you're seed of Christ. 
I'm the root and offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. And then in Isaiah's type language, let him who is thirsty come. Let whom who desires take the water of life without price. And he's talking to you. He's talking to some of you who are in this room. And he's talking to some of you who are listening somewhere else online. He's talking to you. This is God speaking to you through his word. And he's saying, come, come, take the water of life without price. He's inviting you. Have you not discovered yet? How old are you? Have you not discovered yet? This is a thirsty world. It's a dry and thirsty land where nothing really satisfies. So people self-medicate with alcohol and drugs. People self-medicate by binging on other vices. People self-medicate by giving themselves to gambling or whatever it might be. People self-medicate by just sleeping a lot and getting all depressed. But, but the son of David says to you, if you'll just listen, if you'll just turn to me, if you'll just come, I'll give you living waters. There was a woman at the well once that Jesus talked to and her soul was empty and she knew she needed her Messiah. And one of his promises to her was, if you come to me out of your soul, living waters shall flow. You see, instead of being being a thirsty soul trudging around this dry and weary land, you become the source to others. You become a stream, you become a spring. Out of you is springing up the waters of life and gushing forth to other people on this planet. Are you thirsty? You need Jesus Christ. You need to enter Christ's kingdom, Christ the son of David, Christ who will take you to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And if you feel God tugging at your heart about that right now, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's all bow together and pray. Let's pray. Some of you, I'm especially praying with you. You're not Christians. You're not followers of Christ. You need to come to the Savior, the Son of David, and call upon his worthy name. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thirsty. My time in this world, it's been a dry and thirsty land. And I'm weary and I'm tired of seeking and not finding. But Father, I'm turning. Can there be mercy for one such as me? I have ignored you. I've been my own God. Other things have been my idols. Is it possible you could forgive and receive one like me? Dear friend, it is. All of us are like you. The only ones he receives are like you. So pray with me, Father, I'm turning to you now. I'm calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Be gracious to me and pardon me for for, for your great name's sake. I'm praying that Jesus would be my Savior and my Lord and that I would know and find eternal life and springs of living water and life abundant 
in his saving name. Many of you are followers of 